Right when I was coming up with the idea of doing a movie dork podcast, I naturally started writing a list of the various films that I'd want to cover on there. And House, the 1977 version, we're not talking about the garbage western movies from the 80s, by the way. And we're also not talking about medical comedic drama starring Hugh Laurie. This is a different house. But it was on the list, but I had a certain condition for it. As soon as I saw this film, I basically made everybody who was even remotely within my personal sphere watch it too. It was something that took a hold of me, but I didn't want to record a podcast episode about it unless at least one of the parties sitting in with me was a person who had not only never seen it before, but had no idea what the hell was going to happen going in. This limited my pool significantly, but I found a person, and they're here to talk about House with us. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Joining me for this one is my brother, Sylvan. Hello. And Sylvan's done a bunch of these. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Joining us for the very first time is my second cousin, technically, but actually nephew, Jesse. Welcome. What, what was up? <laughs> And I'm chopped liver. Yay! <laughs> Damn right. Well, it was largely Sylvan's idea. I, I didn't know I was going to be doing this. I, I just thought I was just having a normal day. But then Sylvan <laughs> just barged in and be like, hey, Jesse's here for a couple of weeks. Let's make him do house. Honestly, it was a whim for me, too. I, I, this is basically Halloween season uh, in downtown Salem, and I work at a candy store in downtown Salem, so it's like a you know massive chum bucket. So I wasn't expecting to have any energy at all, but I'm alive tonight. All right, so uh, before we go any further, Jesse had just finished watching House for the very first time just a moment ago, and just what's your fresh hot take? To give you three adjectives, absurd superb camp yeah that's fair you're far less shell-shocked than when we had cheryl watch zardoz <laughs> i never heard of that what is that uh that is a post-apocalyptic film where sean connery is wearing a red diaper in the scenes where he's not in a wedding dress okay that sounds interesting i'm gonna watch but it's no house <laughs> no it's no house house is very much aware of what it is whereas the people who are making zardoz are under the impression that they're making high art I feel like, do you, okay, so House was definitely campy. Do you, I feel like to qualify as camp, you kind of have to be self-aware. You mm-hmm. have to be aware that you're creating camp. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Camp, uh, one of the core elements we discussed in the Barbarella episode is deliberate artifice. Oh, there we go. Yeah, House is deliberate artifice. Zardoz is a pretentious movie that is failing. Well, that's what makes it so interesting to watch House, because every time that something insane happens, you know that they want you to be reacting to that, and it might give them that reaction. (laughs) And that's why it's so fun to watch people watch this movie. (laughs) Another thing that is very impressive about House is that usually when a film takes place in an absurd universe, at some point you get used to it, you get adjusted to the film status quo, but House just keeps throwing curveballs at you, and that's not an easy thing to do. I'd say there's continuity, but all just twisted turns. Yeah. And a lot of visual uh, leaps from previous scenes. And you're talking, you know, lots of dissolves, lots of smash cuts, lots of... Odd animation sequences. Lots of split screen. Yeah, that thing where instead of a 
it reminded me of a theatrical spot, like, where, like, the scene would kind of still be around, but then, like, a little circle in the center of the screen would be a different shot of, like, the character's face, and they're smiling or something, you know? Yeah, I forget the official term for that transition, but, yeah, that's all over house. And that was common in French New Wave cinema when they got postmodern and wanted to remind you that you were watching a movie every 30 seconds. <laughs> I mean, I forget I'm watching movies all the time, so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Alright, plot recap. This movie, which takes place in Japan, a sort of Japan, our main character is a young girl named Gorgeous. Before we get further, the main seven girls in this film all have a singular personality trait, not unlike the Ninja Turtles, and their personality trait is also their name. Gorgeous is very pretty. And that she's vain and is constantly primping. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think it's necessarily a reflection of her prettiness. They're all pretty, but she's obsessed with her prettiness. Yeah, whenever the characters are left alone, they will do something to remind you of who they are. And Gorgeous is usually putting on makeup. Anyway, she is planning a summer vacation with her father, who had just been in Italy scoring film music. He brags that Sergio Leone said that his music is better than Ennio Morricone's. I know that means nothing to you, but amongst film geek circles, those are some good references. I've heard you name drop both of those, so yeah, I got that. Okay. Her father returns home and surprises Gorgeous, surprise is a term, by (laughs) announcing that she has a new stepmother, Ryoko Emma. And And, and she's not just to feel like, this is my dad's new partner. No, no. This is your mother. She's going to be your mother now. And she walks into the scene with a billowing scarf. There's a wind machine in front of her at all moments. This upsets Gorgeous, whose mother had died eight years earlier, and she still hasn't gotten over it. Because, yeah, eight years, that is a fair amount of time for a man to start dating again. But it also means that she was quite young when her mother died because she's a high schooler. It so she was probably traumatized. It wasn't the that it wasn't the eight years. It was the way the eight years was delivered. Like, oh, yeah, she's your mom. What? You don't like that? It was eight years ago. Your other mom died. <laughs> this new woman that you meet, she's your mom now. Be happy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'd like to think that if he had approached the subject more diplomatically instead of just awkwardly sagging into it because he didn't know how to introduce it, she'd be like, yeah, it's been eight years, Dad. You should get out more. Regardless, Gorgeous goes to her bedroom and writes a letter to her aunt asking to come visit her for the summer instead because her aunt is still living in her mom's hometown. Gorgeous' aunt replies and allows her to come visit, and Gorgeous just out of the blue invites her six friends along. We have Prof, who is highly academic and very good at problem solving, allegedly. Uh, there's She wears glasses. She has the glasses, so she's the smart one. We have Melody, who has an affinity for music. She's holding a guitar when we first see her. We have Kung Fu. Who, the cool one. Yeah, Kung Fu is so cool. She is very athletic and especially skilled at, you guessed it, Kung Fu. Then we have Mac, who is highly gluttonous, and, is, <laughs> and she's the fat one. Mac is uh, short for stomach. And, uh, yeah, she is, is somewhat chubbier than the other girls. She has a rounder face. That's about it. She's a little curvier. She's got a bit of a belly. Mm-hmm. The others are six. And then we have Sweet, who is bubbly and gentle. And then we have Fantasy, who is a constant daydreamer. And, unsurprisingly, she is the first person who, who pings on to the horrific elements of what is going on, and none of them believe her. She is also in love with a teacher at their high school, which nobody thinks is weird, including the other teachers. This might be a controversial take, but I think Fantasy was my favorite. She was certainly the most interesting. The most, not the most chaotic, but she was pretty chaotic. 
Yeah, and she, she is the final girl for a reason. You're incorrect. The best one's Kung Fu. No, the best one's Kung Fu, but I think my favorite is <laughs> Upon arriving at the aunt's house, the girls are greeted by Gorgeous's aunt, whom they present a watermelon that they picked up on the stand along the way. That was Mac did. Yeah, Mac did. That was uh, your sort of, you don't want to go down that rod moment, where like the, the creepy local tries to ward the, the teenage girls away, but they ignore him. I mean, he doesn't really try to warn them away. I got the feeling that he was in cahoots with the aunt, like he's a ghost too. He said, oh, that house right there. There you go. Off, on your way. But that is a moment where you should have picked up on an evil vibe. Yeah, as you said, you encountered a lot of dudes who look like that in manga and anime, and you were unpleasantly surprised to find that there are actual people who look like that. Yeah, yeah. It's weird seeing that character in live action. He, he manages to make a face where his, like, jowls eat his neck, and he looks something like a frog and starts hopping around. Like, you've all seen that character in an anime before, and uh, this is, this man was a live-action version of that. After a tour of the home, the girls leave the watermelon in a well to keep it cool. Mac later goes to retrieve the watermelon and does not return. When Fantasy goes to check on the watermelon, she finds Mac's severed head instead, which is the exact moment where the movie starts getting weird. It flies in the air and then bites Fantasy's buttocks before she escapes, and then Mac's severed head vomits. The other girls also begin to encounter various supernatural traps throughout the house, although for the most part they are pretty much in denial at this point over what's happening to them. Before we move on, I'd just like to say, the, so they had like placed this watermelon in the well, and so when Fantasy went to pull up the watermelon, I knew that the head was coming, I could sense that, but even though I knew that we were about to see Melody, not Melody, um, Max. Max severed head, what this film did with Max severed head caught me totally off guard. The it being animated, biting <laughs> fantasy on the ass. It being blue. It being, it, if anything, I think it threw up some blood too. Not brought up the cat because the cat is, I mean, the logo of the movie. It's kind of important. Oh, yeah, the, the the cat ends up the guiding cat. them to the house. It's sort of a stalking horse of, uh, uh, in a bit. And as you pointed out, in Japanese culture, cats are often a supernatural sign. They, they're supposed to exist in between the worlds. Yeah, so like the cat jumps into Gorgeous's bedroom window when she's getting the letter from the aunt inviting her to the house. So uh, really guideposts the way that they're on the supernatural journey. The cat by itself is sitting in the train waiting for them to take them there. But when they get lost, the cat points them in the right direction, like saying, I am evil, come this way to evil. Its eyes keep flashing green, and yeah, Sylvan pointed out the cultural detritus of cats in a Japanese culture. This sort of provides a visual shorthand as to what is about to happen. Yep, something creepy and unnatural. I mean, in the context of horror manga, anyway. The, obviously, the cat showing up in Sailor Moon, for example, had a very different <laughs> vibe. <laughs> Yeah, the aunt disappears after entering the broken refrigerator, and the girls are attacked or possessed by a series of items in the house, such as Gorgeous becoming sort of contained by the aunt after using her mirror, and Sweet disappearing after being attacked by mattresses. Sweet has Lame. the lamest death. Yes. The girls try to escape the house, but after Gorgeous is able to leave through a door, the rest of the girls find themselves locked in. They try to find the aunt to unlock the door because they still think that, you know, she's not in on it. Prof has rationalized this, that since Auntie lives alone, she must have an automatic timer to close the doors at night. Also because she had a degree in music, and so therefore she's educated and is more likely to 
know how to install technology into her home, I guess. But Kung Fu had just warded off fireplace logs with her kicks. <laughs> and that's when she loses her pants and says, this is ridiculous. Yeah, showing some awareness, at least, of what kind of movie she's living in. The girls soon discover Max's severed hand in a jar. Melody begins to play the piano to keep the girls' spirits up, and they hear Gorgeous singing upstairs. As Prof and Kung Fu go to investigate, Melody's fingers are bitten off by the piano, and then the piano just eats her whole. Best day. Kind of pseudo-erotically, but like erotic as a challenge. Yeah, we'll be getting back to this film's interesting relationship with nudity. <laughs> Upstairs in the house, Kung Fu and Prof find Gorgeous wearing a bridal gown, her aunt's bridal gown. You see, the backstory for Auntie that we learn through a fake silent film montage is that during World War II, her fiancé had uh, gone off in the Air Force, and he was killed, but she refused to believe it and has decided to live in the house and wait for him to return, which she will do so inevitably. However, she actually died, and while her spirit was gone, her body continued onwards. Unfortunately, the only time that she can wear her bridal gown is if she eats a young, unmarried girl. Well, they get the rest of that backstory from her possessed diary, but uh, Gorgeous shits out while she's walking around all possessed in the uh, the bridal gown. Oh, that's true, yeah. Gorgeous didn't know about the, <laughs> the zombie. Yeah, Gorgeous eyes. didn't know she was leading her friends to their death. Gorgeous. No, I don't think she did. <laughs> yeah, is kind of dumb. Upstairs in the house, Kung Fu and... Oh, yeah. And, and, we keep distracting him. Kung Fu follows Gorgeous as she leaves the room, only to find Sweet's corpse trapped in a grandfather clock. For pa reasons. Panic-driven, the remaining girls barricade the upper part of the house, while Prof, Fantasy, and Kung Fu read the aunt's diary. I already filled that part in. Uh, they are interrupted by the giant-sized head of Gorgeous, who reveals the various <laughs> aspects of the, the backstory and say, please let my auntie eat you. Yeah, that's true. There aren't any that's little girls in the village anymore because she ate them all. She's so hungry. She said, let me eat you. The three girls are then attacked by household items that are flying through the air. Prof shouts to Kung Fu to attack the aunt's cat, Blanche, thinking that if you take out the cat, that'll stop everything. It's a picture, though, right? Just a picture of the cat. Yeah, it was the picture of the cat on the wall, but it did have glowing green eyes. It was clearly... Somehow connected to the cat. I did observe that uh, the, it was a perfect likeness. As Kung Fu lunges into a flying kick, she is eaten by a possessed light fixture. Kung Fu's severed legs manage to escape and damage the painting of Blanche on the wall, which in turn kills Blanche physically. The attacked Blanche portrait spurts blood, causing the room to flood with cat gore. So even as she dies, Kung Fu is still kicking ass. Prof tries to continue reading the diary, but a jar with teeth pulls her into the blood river, where she dissolves. Fantasy sees Gorgeous in the bridal gown and paddles towards her. Gorgeous appears as her aunt in the reflection in the blood, and then cradles Fantasy. In the morning, Ryoko arrives at the house and finds Gorgeous in the classic kimono. Gorgeous tells Ryoko that her friends will wake up soon and that they will be hungry when they do. She then shakes hands with Ryoko and burns her away to nothing. While this is going on, Mr. Togo is supposedly coming to the rescue. But we all know he's not going to be useful. Yeah, he gets distracted, and then he appears amongst creepy dude who runs the watermelon stand and is turned into bananas. Ryoko finds a pile of bananas wearing Togo's glasses. And his hat. And his hat. It's the hat that gives it away, really. End of film. Okay. <laughs>
for the development of this film. Toho commissioned this movie in the hopes of replicating the success of Jaws. This brings me no end of amusement. Toho wanted a domestic reflection of a Western monster movie in the Jaws mold, and they got this. I mean, yeah, so many parallels, so many. There's um, eventually water, and uh, I've never seen Jaws. You guys got to help me. What are the other similarities? There's a killer animal in it. They came out of fear. People die. Oh, uh, people constantly gaslighting fantasy about the uh, house being troublesome. Like everyone except fantasy is the mayor in Jaws. <laughs> if you count that uh, piece of floor that fantasy was like spawn in the river at the end, it's kind of a boat. Yeah, a little bit. No oxygen tank, though. Well, they I could have fa- used an oxygen tank, yeah. Yeah, my favorite part of Jaws, however, is when the shark starts singing his own theme song. Rawr, <laughs> <laughs> rawr. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there's there's one bit of theme music that is just repeated nonstop in this, so you have to really like that melody to to deal with this this movie. I do think it's a pretty melody. Yeah, I enjoy it so much. All right, director Nobuhiko Obayashi had directed a few art house shorts and many commercials when he was contacted by Toho to put together a screenplay. This is his first feature film. The script was partially inspired by Obayashi's twelve year old daughter uh, Shigumi, who had a childhood fear of being eaten by a mirror. While discussing this with her father, he got her in touch with the screenwriter and started having him talk about all of her various other childhood fears. She was scared of being bitten to death by a piano while she was playing it. She didn't like being smothered by futon mattresses as a child. She had this dream that she was once trapped inside a giant grandfather clock. All right, so really she needs a screenwriting credit. (laughs) Obayashi said that he consulted his daughter so much over this because he didn't want this film to feel adult. He felt that adults were boring and that they could only think about stuff that they've already experienced, whereas if you talk to a child, they can construct things that have never been imagined before. And that just plays throughout his entire approach to to putting the film together. Obayashi also decided to incorporate the um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings into the script since he lost many childhood friends through, uh, through radiation poisoning and also getting killed in the war. How was that incorporated into the script? I mean, you mostly saw it in visuals, I feel like. There's a lot of mushroom clouds. Toho readily accepted the script, but no director at the studio would touch it, thinking that it would murder their career. Obayashi volunteered to direct it himself, but since he wasn't a staff director for Toho, they wouldn't let him do it right away. As such, Obayashi had a manga, a radio drama, and a novelization created in order to help pitch the film. Oh my god, I need to write the manga. All of these were produced before shooting, as was the musical score. All right. Eventually, after two years, Toho hired Obayashi and gave him the reins. For the filming, uh, all of the girls were amateurs who had very little acting experience, besides appearing in Obayashi's commercials. You don't say. Producers were, for the most part, encouraging to Obayashi. They claimed that, since their comprehensible movies were losing money, perhaps a bizarro nonsensical <laughs> movie would be a hit. However, they were planning to market House as what is called a pink movie. In circles like this, this essentially means that it exists to show the audience boobies, and producers generally do not give many notes to those who are making pink movies. You can make any kind of movie you want, as long as it's got titty in it. 
this is something that Obayashi technically fulfills. Faust did have that too. Yeah. A couple times, several cities. And, and in some cases, disconnected from bodies entirely. In most cases. <laughs> in the air, distended. Well, the majority of pink movies are uncreative hack work. That can't be surprising to anybody. Every now and again, because there's just total creative liberty, some weirdo gets to make some kind of artsy fever dream and then market it as a pink movie, and this is one of the more infamous examples. Yeah, I mean, didn't you just say, like, or one of you mentioned, like, you would you would like that kind of creative freedom, you know? Whatever, I can fulfill it by just putting in some boobs. Yeah, yeah, as a creative type, if someone approached me and was like, yeah, here's several million dollars, come back with a movie, just make sure there are boobs in it, and be like, yes, sir, I can work within that. But imagine being the person to say... Here's several million dollars. I don't care what you do. Full creative freedom, freedom ceded to you as long as there's at least two. Let's say two sets of titties <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> oh, and make sure there's some uh, upskirt shots, too. <laughs> oh. Dang it. <laughs> All right, shooting took two months. There were no storyboards done beforehand. Obayashi kept things light on set. He often danced, sang, and skipped around in between takes and encouraged his cast members to do the same. He also frequently played board games and quiz games with them. However, he did feel that the girls were very bad actors. So, inspired by Sergio Leone and the Dollars trilogy, he started playing the score during scenes in order to get them in the proper headspace. Honestly, I like that idea. He noted a marked improvement in their performances after that. Kimiko Ikigami, who played Gorgeous, was uncomfortable with her nude scene in the bath. Yoko Minamita, who plays uh, Auntie, undressed in order to make her feel less self-conscious. Obayashi, after seeing her naked, then wrote a nude scene for Auntie. Well, hey, he had a city quota. (laughs) And he's got to give the producers what they want. Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Obayashi used a lot of the animation and model techniques he learned uh, from commercials for House. Toho was not equipped for the special effects that were required for this movie. The amateurish appearance of the special effects was a deliberate choice. Obayashi wanted the FX to look deliberately fake, as if a child did them. I thought it better than a child did them, although they were simplicity enough. I bought into it. Yeah, there's a lot of like hand-drawn rotoscoping. Whenever somebody's in front of a blue screen, uh, you can see the borders of the blue screen around them. It's not trying too hard to make you forget that this is artifice, in other words. Maybe I'm too forgiving, but I just I chopped it up to an artistic choice. <laughs> well, I mean, you're a theater geek. That's and yes, true. it was an artistic choice. Yeah. But yeah, when you're in theater, very constructed artifice is more part and parcel with it. Whereas if a, if a movie has set pieces that are not convincing it better be for a reason and this is definitely to give a tone and give you a fantasy setting of a specific nature and also a what the fuck yeah the box art for this describes it as among other things in a scooby-doo episode directed by mario bava i think that mostly works one effects example was Ai Matsubara's death. She played prof. This involved her being suspended nude while buckets of blue stage blood were dumped on her in front of a blue screen in order to give the effect that her limbs were disappearing. That must have been real annoying to film. Yes. All right, let's talk about the music, which, as I mentioned already, was written, recorded, and commercially released before the movie even started shooting. It was composed by Asei Kabayashi, 
who had worked on most of Obayashi's commercials. However, after hearing the score, Obayashi wanted younger musicians involved, so he hired a um, indie rock group out of Tokyo called Go Daigo to contribute songs based on the piano motifs. They cameo during the scene where the girls are going to the bus stop, and, you know, these older dudes are flirting with them. That's the band. Oh, good to know. Jesse found the uh, English language song as they were getting on the bus to be a bit jarring. I was just disoriented. I didn't expect it to be English. And so I didn't. I started to understand words before I understood that it was in English. <laughs> and it was really just confusing. That's a good, a good way to summarize most of watching this movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's uh, break down the cast of this. I mean, I've already been doing this so far, but I'm an incredibly Caucasian person. If this doesn't come off as very obvious to you, I do not speak Japanese. I'm doing my best guesses. I've looked up a couple of these, but I am probably going to mangle a bunch of them. I apologize to anybody who is bilingual and is cringing at this. Okay, uh, Kimiko Ikigami as gorgeous. She is the closest thing to somebody who had a long career after this movie. She's appeared in a bunch of stuff throughout the 70s and 80s. I haven't seen any of them. I don't know if she has any more screen charisma than the rest of the cast. She is a bit of an anchor of the movie, and I do think she's a convincing ghost. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. She has has some creepy energy. Yeah, the the scene where she's staring into the mirror and pieces of her face fall off, and you have the rotoscoped animated fire behind her. That was good. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that, 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 yeah, I could tell you were getting off to that. Yeah, that was, my, that was a good death. No, I'm not with the assistant on stuff. I'm sorry, I know these things should be subjective, but they're just not. <laughs> no, you're, I'll give you that, Sylvan. Melody's was the best death. And then we have Miki Jinbo as Kung Fu. Woo, the best girl. Uh, Jinbo. Her own music. Yeah. Her own, like, background music. I don't think anybody else had their own melodic theme. Well, Ryoko had her own uh, theme. Yeah, she had like this classical Hitchcockian old school Hollywood theme whenever her scarf was billowing in the wind. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kung Fu's theme was better because everything about Kung Fu is better. Yeah, she gets this sort of pseudo. Yeah, pseudo um, Asian funk thing going on. Mm. I think the composer had listened to everybody's kung fu fighting and took like this bastardized Asian disco song and then brought it back. <laughs> Reappropriation. Yeah, kung fu is the best because like she's just very assertive and unruffled by the fact that she's in a horror movie. Like, okay, well, shit's happening. I'm gonna happen back. Yeah, there's one part where she's like, no, we're not in a horror movie. We're in a karate movie. I'm going to kick this fucking ghost. Still dies, just like everyone else, but she goes down swinging. None of the rest of them do. Jinbo also had a fairly lengthy career after this. She was briefly a teen pop idol. I can see that. She's very cute. Yeah, and she's still working occasionally, even though she's currently in her 60s. Cool. We have Ai Matsubara as prof. Meh. Yeah, you're not impressed by Prof. Like, she's supposed to be the smart one. And she's really not. (laughs) She just has glasses. Do any of the other girls actively read off off a page? Like, I Um, certainly all know about Gorgeous, because the letter. She writes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And she reads her aunt's response. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Then we have Kumiko Oba as fantasy. Jesse's favorite character, I guess. Okay, listen. Listen, listen, listen. 
she's not, it's not like, I just think she's the most interesting, okay? There's a lot going on. Because she's the first to get picked on by the auntie. Mm-hmm. Like, she, everybody's like, oh, you're going crazy. They're gaslighting her. She's the victim of the gaslighting. Um, but she was right all along. And she's the very last to die. Oh, you never see her die. So who, who knows for sure? Okay. Okay. And at the end, she's still, like, dare I say, dumb enough to see Gorgeous, who's murdered her her and her friends and shows and she and she goes out to to go to her for help and i think that's so interesting and i'm fascinated by it also her unsettling relationship with her teacher who she keeps expecting to come rescue her even though he's this schlubby dude with terrible 70 sideburns that's the time the bananas who cannot get a bucket off his ass after doing a pratfall down the stairs uh, the, the cat trips him like one thing we've that. established in previous episodes is that i really don't like grown-ass men creeping and perving on young girls that's actually okay she has an interesting motif that i wish was developed more and that she was saying that Mr. Togo, her boyfriend slash teacher, he's going to come back because he promised. So he has to, which is the same reasoning that Auntie had with her man who died in war. And that, that kind of touched on that similarity. And I wish that they had dug deeper into that because that was interesting. That is an interesting parallel. Although I think it dovetails nicely into Prof going, he never promised the house. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. All right. We have uh, Miko Sato as Mac. Yeah. Entertaining. She was fine. She set up some of my favorite jokes, you know, the, the complimenting her on being so fat and delicious looking. Yeah, she does make quite a bit of an impact on this film, especially considering she just gets bumped off first. Yep. And again, you know, funny that she's supposed to be so fat, but to us Americans, she just looks like slightly chubbier than the other girls. I mean, she is playing the role in most other teen comedies where they have, like, this token, less attractive girl that they just constantly dunk on to make themselves feel better about themselves. Like, yeah, every teen comedy movie has one of those. Heather's has one. I did Mm. notice that Mac is uh, darker complexion than all the other girls. Really? I think that's playing into that as well. You know, colorism is definitely a thing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, especially in a very carefully racist society like Japan. I always look at Japanese racism, which is like just as prevalent as American, but in different ways, like the blood type thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Blood type thing? Your your blood type is like an ast- astrology thing. Oh. It's supposed to give like uh, personality traits. That's interesting. And in some ways they see like certain blood types as being more like Korean, which to them <gasps> is a garbage race. Oh, oh Jesus. Again, we're Americans. We can't really criticize too much. Yeah, no, Our I know. System is yeah. up in very different ways. Oh, yeah, sure. Glass houses, but like people of Korean ancestry in Japan, their families could have been in Japan for five generations. They're still seen as foreigners, like Asian people in America. <laughs> All right, we have Maseo Miyako as Sweet. Once again, Sweet didn't ha- get to make much of an impact either. She cleans the house and then gets eaten by mattresses. And I, I think there's the, the scene where Kung Fu sees her dissolving in the clock. There's this moment of like tenderness where Kung Fu feels regret like she should have protected Sweet better. And I think that's a hint at the nature of their relationship before that moment, like you, you were saying about the, the parallels with Auntie mm. and fantasy. I wouldn't have minded that being explored in a little more detail, but, you know, six girls to kill off, only a short movie. There's not too much time for that sort of thing, especially since we wasted so much time on Togo. Did Sweet die twice? I don't get that, because she was pummeled by mattresses and pillows, and then also was eaten by a clock? 
I think she was already dead when she was dissolved in the clock. I think that part was to fuck with Kung Fu. Oh, uh, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's my take on it, anyway. Uh, when a movie like this, it's hard to know for sure. And then we have uh, Eriko Tanaka as Melody. She was very attractive, very creepy face. Yeah, and creepy for, like, no reason at all. Like, the part where she just leans out and asks fantasy for toilet paper. She like, does... is she already a ghost? <laughs> And also the part where she's getting eaten by the piano. I this loved it. Naughty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, she's looking at her like disembodied blue screen titty on the other side of the screen. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, she was so out of it and it was creepy. But like, even before she started to get torn apart, right when the piano first came down and snapped off her fingers, she had this weird kind of like ethereal, not really caring that her fingers just got chopped off. Just observing it. Yeah, she looks like she's disassociating. Yes, and then. The other leg drops and her whole hand gets chopped off, and that's when she freaks out and gets eaten for real. And I love the delivery, loved it. Levels. Yeah, definitely the most compelling death scene, in my opinion, which is, as I've stated, not subjective for this movie. That's just true. Okay, and finally, uh, Yoko Minamita as Auntie. She was about 30 when this movie came out, which is, yeah, very obvious because when she's not in the flashback, she's. Like, wearing a white wig, and you're like, this is an old lady. She's like, no, no it's not. <laughs> However, there was some risk for her taking this role, because, as I mentioned in a few prior episodes, Asian cinema is far more likely to typecast than Western cinema, and Western cinema likes to typecast. So, if she played an older woman, then a lot of studios are just going to only see her as that. And once again, she was only 30. Do you know if that did end up happening? That she played older women after this? Uh, no, no. She was able to dodge that for the most part. Maybe it helped that she was also playing younger women throughout this. Mm. She, she was getting younger and more energized the more girls she ate. That's true. Yeah, it kept going. Like, as when Mac disappeared, she got out of her wheelchair and was like, you can walk now? I was like, yeah, you gave me energy. Literally. I love my favorite line of hers is when she's talking about having the girls over as guests. Reminds her of when she was a little girl and she got to go to a fancy restaurant and how excited she was. Just says this straight up to them. Like, yeah, no, like, I, I know that it was technically a spoiler when I was making jokes about how she was going to eat all of the girls, but the movie telegraphs it right away. Uh, for the release and reception of this film, uh, it was put out on a double feature with a pink movie called Pure Hearts and Mind. I have no idea what that is. Toho expected it to flop. When they caught the movie, they're just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> However, it was a surprise sleeper hit. It got very good word of mouth, especially amongst the youth audience. Teenagers in Japan in 1977 were all about house. It got horrible reviews in Japan. <laughs> In translated contemporary reviews that I came across, the most common words that popped up were incoherent, nonsensical, <laughs> a goddamn mess. <laughs> Cast and crew were under the impression that they were making incomprehensible gibberish while they were making the movie and kept teasing Obayashi about it. Everyone who calls this movie uh, incomprehensible, close-minded, I'll say it. <laughs> It was well-liked in several small art house theaters in North America. The New York Times liked the movie. It did not get any official U.S. screenings until 2009, when Janus Films acquired it for the Criterion Collection. I know there was a screening in Salem, not last year, but the year before, that I wasn't able to make, and I was disappointed about that. 
Upon the 2009 release, when, you know, white people started noticing this movie, Janice was flooded with requests for theatrical screenings, like every small theater wanted to start showing House. It is now a very popular Midnight Madness option. There are people who do it as double feature shadow plays of Rocky Horror. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, and uh, also uh, The Cabot in Beverly did a uh, screening of House that I was able to see. And that one, they digitally removed the score and had like a local indie electronic group play the movie's uh, music live while it was going on. I'm sorry, why didn't you tell me about this? I feel offended right now. Yeah, it was super cool. You would have loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I feel very loved right now. I mean, Obayashi directed dozens of films between 1977 and 2019. This is the start of a long and fruitful career for him. Oh, uh, shit. Many of his later films are actually straightforward films with a conventional three-act structure, but others delve into surrealism and dream logic. He never quite got rid of that. He died in the year of 2020. He was 82. I would call this... I would say this film is structured relatively... Like, in a, in a standard way. There's a pretty clear beginning, middle, and end, climax and all of that. It doesn't make it any less surreal or all over the place, though. Yeah, you are right. It is a pretty conventional haunted house movie. Most of the stuff that leaps out is at you is unnatural, is in the mezzanine. But, um, yeah, I, I suppose I should contrast this with, say, his, uh, his student films, which, yeah, those are completely plotless. He made a bunch of, like, Salvador Dali, uh, Max Ernst types things, and then he made House. House is the first movie he made that has a story. All right, I didn't have time to write down uh, thematic talking points. There are a couple I could get into, but uh, do either of you have anything about the film's subtext that you'd like to bring up? I guess um, we already touched on this, but, you know, you talking about it being a pink movie and stuff, and I guess the fact that, like, it's kind of erotic adjacent, like, here are things that we know people like sexually, you know, pretty young women's bodies. Let's make it difficult to find them enticing as we're revealing them to you. And I kind of like that. Mm. Yeah, let's stuff this naked person into a grandfather clock. Let's take this other naked person, but like cut them into pieces with really cheap blue screen technology and just have them floating in the air like it's haunting the background. And like when Melody's getting eaten by the piano, like she's on her back and she's writhing almost sexually, but not quite there. And it's it's really uncomfortable in an interesting way to me. Yeah, I, I kept saying and thinking to myself, it's like Obayashi going, yeah, have fun masturbating to this, nerds. <laughs> so I guess that's my theme. I like I, we, we often try to look at these things through like a feminist lens and like you could say that this movie is being like exploitative or whatever, but it's really not. It finds a way to not do that, even though that was their instruction. <laughs> Yeah, maybe Obayashi is just being deliberately contrarian. It's like, oh, yeah, I will technically fulfill this in a way that is similar to a monkey's paw wish. <laughs> Speaking of uh, a feminist take, I was interested in the concept of like agency and independence for these girls because I feel like they have a great deal of agency theoretically but not in actuality within the film like for example their names all just being one trait that's boiled down the fact that they are objectified kind of sexually and that's the purpose of the film to objectify these these women but then they're objectified also as food within the plot (laughs) 
But then they also, like, they are smart. They do try pretty hard to save themselves in some cases. Except fantasy. She just flails and panics and the other girls have to take care of her. She faints when she watches Melody getting eaten by the piano. Which, fair. Yeah. Because that was happening fall. in front of me, and also the goldfish fall on her, and that's creepy too. I would call Kung Fu a girl boss for sure. Yeah. Perhaps even gorgeous a girl boss. Yeah. She's a murderess. Oh, oh, you mean possessed gorgeous? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Last second. My auntie's a girl boss. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I do also think it's interesting that the girls get to just like decide via summer vacation plans, like. Gorgeous was supposed right. to be going away with her dad to meet her apparently new mom. And then she's like, nah, I'm going to go hang out with my aunt that I haven't seen in, what was it, eight years or something? Yeah, and she can just go. They'll just hop up and hop the train together. Yep. And, you know, my best friend's pedo boyfriend is going to meet us there. Fine. Right. Such an interesting mix of this agency situation. <laughs> <laughs> it would be an understatement to say that Japan has a patriarchal society. And even though second wave feminism was cresting in Japan roughly at the same time as it was in the West, you know, you still have these parts left, like nobody's looking twice at Mr. Togo. Mr. Togo. Or is it possible that people were looking twice and the point was that nobody made a big deal of it in the film? And then that should raise eyebrows to the viewers? It could be. I could be missing context here. When he said ugly American talking. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I just I don't know. I don't have the cultural context either. (laughs) I just know that that's shit I don't like. Fuck you, Mr. Togo. I'm glad you're bananas. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I did want to bring up is how this film was influenced by Western culture, but it was attempting to Easternize it or in some cases re-Easternize it, especially with Kung Fu's theme. But yeah, one thing that I forgot to mention in the screenplay process is that the screenwriter, his big light bulb moment after talking to Obayashi's daughter about her various nightmares is that he remembered this fairy tale written by Walter de la Mare that he liked as a kid that involved an old woman who locks her visiting granddaughters in a trunk. Oh. And he sort of built the movie around his fever dream memories of that story. Okay, I can kind of see some parallels with like some like Grimm Brothers style, like girls disappearing in a witch's <laughs> house kind of story. And, uh, you know, this film came about because they were trying to make Jaws and did this instead. I guess Obayashi pitched this as, hey, instead of a shark, let's have it be a cat and go into, like, traditional Japanese folklore, supernatural stuff about cats. Did they ever explain how the cat became part of this? Because they said it seems like the body of the auntie is the, for lack of a better word, demon, but it seems like the power actually lies within the cat. Yeah, like maybe the cat is a familiar, but that's more of Western folklore. I mean, I just kind of read the cat as the physical manifestation that something ain't right there. You know, the cat represents that they've, like, entered into a supernatural setting. Mm. All right, uh, one other thing that I thought I could bring up in this is World War II and the perspective on that. Uh, I think, you know, going over a lot of Japanese films, particularly mid-century ones, Japan is the only culture on Earth that has firsthand knowledge of atomic warfare, and that has permeated their pop culture in ways that are difficult to quantify, even in ways where it's more esoteric like this film. 
And that pops up in Obayashi's other films quite a bit, and it's in the context of this one in particular, especially that flashback sequence where he mimics silent Japanese propaganda films. Yeah, that part is really strange, too, because, you know, this this movie is a horror movie. Like, there are things happening that are supposed to be frightening, and there are traditional horror tropes, but it's also campy and ridiculous, and you're cracking up left, right, and center. But that part's pretty serious. Mm. And again, like the visuals of the mushroom clouds and stuff, kind of takes you out for a minute. I have brought up in previous episodes that uh, Asian cinema is a little less fussy about tonal shifts than Western movies are. They'll occasionally throw this curveball at you like, hey, everybody's laughing, we're all having fun, rape scene. I. That's interesting that they kind of threw you for a second or that it kind of changed the tone because, I don't know, maybe I'm just desensitized because I'm the Gen Z and, I don't know, violence and stuff is not that, I don't know, off-putting to me. I'm used to it. But I really wasn't, my tone, the, the, the tone of the film didn't really shift drastically for me after I saw those, like, old World War II flashbacks. It was kind of like, oh, well, that's part of it. And then I moved on. So that, that, that was interesting. That kind of lingered with you. Oh, yeah, that part always gives me pause because it, it's the only part of the movie that feels real. Mm. Even though it has a lot more deliberate artifice to it. Like I said, it's, it's structured like a silent film. It's shot the way movies in Japan from that period are shot. And we get the girls giving their commentary over it in very ridiculous ways. Like, yeah, no, it's not realistically done, but it evokes something very real. Yeah, I can see that. And even within the artifice, like, Japan had sound films in the 40s, but for some reason they're still using intertitles. Okay, and I believe that's everything I was able to scribble down. Is there anything about House that you guys would like to mention? Oh, wait. Apparently, shortly after House came out, Obayashi pitched a Godzilla movie. Oh. That would have been so cool. That didn't happen, huh? No, it didn't. Uh, It was about somebody finding the corpse of Godzilla and finding out that it it was actually possessed by an interdimensional being all this time. Very cool. But uh, this was during a period where Toho was keeping Godzilla under wraps. It would be another seven or eight years before they put out a Godzilla movie. So they turned him down. And Obayashi never got to direct a Godzilla movie. Be interesting to see him talk about, you know, nuclear paranoia through the the most famous example of Japanese film commenting on nuclear paranoia. Oh my god! I want to go to the timeline where that happened. Okay, so besides that, anybody else, anything about House before we sign off? I think a lot of the style of the cinematography, the tone even, it reminded me of some, I don't know, arts, arts films. I really enjoyed it. It was very weird. It was wacky. Um, but especially if you like arts films, I, I recommend giving it a watch, as long as you're cool with not having any idea of what to expect. Because there's not, like, conventions that are set and that hang around, except that it's a scary movie, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of art house things in there. Some of it is, you know, deliberate choice, and I think some of it is just ways to work around the, the budget. Also, I think that Obayashi's experience doing commercials plays through. Uh, as Sylvan pointed out, the way certain characters pose, especially if they're standing in front of a spiffy car or the like. But another thing is that with commercials, you have 30 seconds to get your point across. And I think that does play across in the way that the film is paced and structured. Have we mentioned camp yet? This is a campy movie. 
the drama of it all. Oh, we did. We talked about the camp. Good. Okay. I want, I'm glad we brought it up again. It's that camp. Well, we recorded Barbarella a couple days ago, so we were maybe Sylvan and I are a little burnt out on talking about camp. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, most of the stuff we said about Barbarella also applies to this. Well, my closing note is just kung fu is the best. Mm, kung fu is so cool. Here, so cool. All right, with that, we finally did an episode on House. Thanks for listening.